I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Plays the Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name is Tim McIntosh. Last week in our feed, we posted a talk that I did on Shakespeare's view of leadership. This week is also, of course, about Shakespeare. That's what our podcast is about. The title is How to Become a Word-Coining Genius. It's about how Shakespeare's education in Stratford-upon-Avon back in the late 1500s prepared him to invent all of these new words that became part of the English lexicon. He invented, by estimates, 1,700 new words. So this talk, like the last one, was given at the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival. I was invited by my friend Nora Ankrum, who's the executive director of Alchemy Theater. You can hear Nora on two previous shows, The Taming of the Shrew or All's Well That Ends Well. Also, thanks to Mike Murdoch, Artistic Director of Alchemy Theater. If you live in Alchemy Theater in Huntingdon, West Virginia, make sure you catch a show. It's a great theater. It's starting to really catch fire. Go see a show at Alchemy Theater. Now, one warning before we start. This speech was pretty interactive, and I paused several times during the talk so that the audience can perform word-coining exercises Feel free to do the exercises yourself if you're at home, or if you're driving, just skip forward 30 or 60 seconds to resume the lecture. I really hope you like the talk, and best of luck to you in your attempts to become a word-coining genius. We're going to start this talk on how to become a word-coining genius, and you'll all be word-coining geniuses by the end of this talk. By, I'm going to ask you to do something that you'll probably never hear again in a theater. I want you to take out your cell phones. And what I would like you to do is find a short text, not short like cool, see you then, but short like 
this text that I'm going to read between my wife and I, something very practical. You're kind of doing some business with somebody that you know. Here's what the one that I selected for my wife. This is her, and then I'll respond with me. Her. Hey, babe, do we have a masonry or carbonite drill bit that Robin, our neighbor, could borrow? This is like the perfect text that I want. And my response is, yes, I think we do, but it's pretty thick. It should be in my toolbox, gold-colored. What I want you to do is I want you to find a text sort of like that, something kind of practical and maybe a total of like 20 words and a 20-word reply or something like that. That's the goal, okay? And when you find that, let me know. Give me a little thumbs up. Okay. Now, so I want, what I want you to do is I want you to write down... I'm gonna show you exactly what I did because I want you to do the same thing. I want you to write your text like this, okay? So, I want you to write down the text and I want you to write it down in 10 syllable lines. That's called foreshadowing. Why 10 syllable lines? Anybody have a guess about why we would be doing 10 syllable lines? That's what William Shakespeare wrote with. He wrote most often when he was writing, not prose, but um, in iambic pentameter, 10-syllable lines. So I'm just going to read out. You guys keep working. You can just tune me into the background for a second. I wrote down this exchange between Galen and I. She says, do we have a masonry or carbo... That's 10 syllables. Night drill that Robin, our neighbor, could bar. That's 10 syllables. Row. That's one syllable. And I want you to write it out like that. So 10 syllables, 10 syllables. If you bleed over to, with like three or four syllables, awesome. That's going to that's gonna be the point of the exercise. So here it is again. Everybody got what we're doing? Let's take 30 more seconds.
So I'm going to read mine again, and then I'm going to ask somebody who has an especially boring or mundane text that they used if they're willing to read it out. So here's mine, and I'm going to read out the syllables. Do we have a masonry or carbo night drill that Robin, our neighbor, could bar B-O, row? So I've got 10, 10, 1, and then I've got, yes, I think we do, but it's pretty thick. It should be in my toolbox gold colored. Okay, anybody else have any? And you're, if you're willing to read it kind of with the syllables, that'd be great. Something really boring. You finished first, are you willing? Yeah. I feel like I heard you say you had a Dutch oven last weekend. Do you still have it or did it get donated? Perfect, that's perfect. Exactly what I was looking for. Anybody else want to try one? What we're gonna do is I'm gonna tell you a little bit about William Shakespeare's education. And part of his education, believe it or not, was literally learning how to invent new words. So I'm gonna tell you about his education and then we're gonna come back to these, these sheets of paper and we're gonna rewrite this very mundane text that you guys have. And I'm gonna follow along with you. I'm gonna to try to do my own thing. We're gonna rewrite it in Shakespearean language. How does that sound? Using these kind of tools that we think that he learned um, at Stratford Primary School, I think it was called, Grammar School, I can't remember. So that's what we're gonna be doing today. But first, I wanna kind of talk about um, two aspects of his education before we get to the word coining training that he got. So, um, a lot of what I'm, a lot of what I am um, reporting here is from a book called Shakespeare's Use of the Arts of Language by Sister Miriam Joseph. It was published in the 60s. It's kind of like the classic book on what we think Shakespeare's education is. And let me caveat everything by saying we know very, very, very little about William Shakespeare. Like Bill Bryson, if you guys know the author Bill Bryson, A Walk in the Woods, he published a book, A Little Life of Shakespeare, and he takes pains to point out, like if you actually took the pieces of paper and just wrote out, like on three by five cards, let's say, what we know about William Shakespeare for fact, it's maybe three, three and a half by five cards. It's not much. It's lots and lots of like, speculation, it's a lot of, okay, well, if he was here at this time, maybe he experienced this, but we don't really know. So a lot of what I'm um, gonna talk about his early education is based not on any record that we have of William Shakespeare's diary saying, how I enjoyed my Latin lessons today or anything like that. We don't have that. What we have is historical evidence about what the kind of schooling was like at his time and in his place, okay? So here we go. Here's what Sister, Sister Miriam Joseph says about William Shakespeare's, why he became the kind of incredible playwright, incredible poet that he became. She says, the extraordinary power, 
vitality and richness of William Shakespeare's language are due in part to three things. The type of education he received in Renaissance England, which imitated ancient masters, but it was also soaked in logic. Those are the two important things. Number two, the unsettled linguistic forms of his age, which promoted a spirit of creativity. And what's the third thing that she says contributed toward the extraordinary power of vitality and richness of his language? He was a genius. <laughs> he was a total genius. So everybody knows the third thing, but not many people know the first two things. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the first two things, and then we're going to have fun with um, words. So what was the form of education in Renaissance England? I will preempt this by saying the reason that I'm here is because I met Nora at a classical education conference probably four years ago. And this classical education conference is basically this semi, it's not really an underground movement anymore, but it's this movement to return to the sort of education that Shakespeare had. Not exactly, but kind of like that. So his education probably started in 1571 at Stratford Grammar School. That's where he would have learned his ABCs and his catechism. What's a catechism? We know what the ABCs are. What's a catechism? Somebody take a rough religious shot. Beliefs laid out. That's right, right. And so it's religious beliefs played out, and it's usually in the form of question and answer. So oftentimes the very first question would be, what is the chief end of man? Question. And the student's response is, should be memorized, the chief end of man is to love God and to enjoy him forever. I think that's from the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, so he would have learned his catechism and his ABCs in 50, beginning in 1571 at Stratford Grammar School. The goal of Renaissance education was, quote, this is from a scholar of the time, to imitate the most renowned workmasters that antiquity affordeth. To imitate the most renowned workmasters that antiquity affordeth. So basically, the goal was to train young people so that they could sit down with Homer and Virgil and they could be like, oh man, I can, I'm gonna imitate this beautiful form of writing. And you can hear, if you guys know Chaucer at all from your schooling, Shakespeare clearly liked to imitate Chaucer. He's got a kind of cadence to him. They both love body humor. And so it's, it's presumed, and I think they're exactly right, that Shakespeare learned how to imitate Chaucer. Also, during the, Renaissance, the English Renaissance form of education, they practiced the liberal arts. Now, I have found that liberal arts is one of those words that everybody kind of roughly knows what it means, but in a technical sense, it's kind of hard to define. So I'm gonna define it in a more technical sense. The liberal arts are arts for, back in the day, freemen, meaning aristocrats, people that were not, that had enough money that they didn't have to practice the 
mechanical arts. So the mechanical arts would be, we don't really have an analog for it today. The closest that I could come up with is something like um, vocational training in high school where you learn, like I remember, I took took woodshop. You could also take a drafting class. These would be examples of the mechanical arts. These are ways in which you would like earn your trade if you were part of the vast number of non-aristocrats in England. But for the upper class, they learned the liberal arts, and there are seven liberal arts. I'm going to read them to you. They're broken into three and four. I'm tempted to ask you, Nora, if you can tell me what the, what the three are. Okay, Nora, tell us what the three are. <laughs> the trivium. Yeah, yeah. Good. Grammar, logic, rhetoric. So the idea behind the trivium is, and I recommend this form of education, like I really hope that my daughter can get this form of education. She's only five, so we're not quite there yet. Five months, we're not quite there yet. Um, Grammar is like the building blocks, just the kind of rudiment facts for everything. So in history, when was the Constitution signed? 1789, I think it was, right? So that would be an example of like a fact. So the idea during the grammar stage is to learn your ABCs, the facts of history, things like this. And then you kind of graduate up to the second stage. What's the second stage again? Logic. Logic. And so this is taking facts and putting them, putting them in a logical order. And then what, what's the third one? Rhetoric. And so could you tell us what rhetoric is, roughly? Uh, so that it's, it's uh, mimicking those ideas and express, learning to express them yourself and your own ideas. That's right. And sometimes learning how to express them um, in competition with other ideas. So classical schools love to have debates. That would be the rhetoric of this student and the rhetoric of this student arguing over a statement, something like that. So the seven liberal arts are broken into three. We just heard about the trivium and also the quadrivium. So the quadrivium, think about the quadrivium as everything is about number for the quadrivium. So the four aspects of quadrivium, I promise this, we will get past this. This is not the bulk of the talk. I just find it really interesting. And so I'm punishing you guys with it. (laughs) Quadrivium, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And I wish I had, could do a better job, but I'm going to try to sound out in front of you guys how they thought about numbers. Um, arithmetic is basically numbers in and themselves. So if I took a five and I added it to a three, I would get an eight. Music is numbers in is it in relation to each other, right? So if a rhythm is one, four, that would be an example of, of numbers in relation to each other. Geometry is numbers in, I believe it's in motion. And then astronomy is numbers in motion in relation to each other, okay? So Shakespeare's language is like 
soaked in this logical, very systematic approach. I think it makes so much sense, but that's about me. Um, together, the trivium and the quadrivium are called the liberal arts. A second part of um, Shakespeare's education was a kind of subset of logic. He was trained in building syllogisms. Can anybody tell me what a syllogism is? Anybody? We use them all the time. You've used them 18 times today, if not 1,800 times today. That's right. So everybody hear that? If A then B, say to keep going. If B then C. If B. So here, here's a specific example. Major premise. Major premise A. No reptiles have fur. Minor premise. B, all snakes are reptiles. So major, no reptiles have fur. Minor, all snakes are reptiles. Therefore, C, no snakes have fur. fur. Excellent. You can see Shakespeare's use of logic and syllogism like all over the place once you start looking for it. From Henry IV, part one, Prince Hal calls Falstaff his drinking buddy, if you guys remember last night, his drinking buddy, Prince Hal calls Falstaff a coward, and Falstaff retorts, I deny your major. I deny your major premise. In Timon of Athens, Timon's faithful steward, Flavius, says, have you forgot me, sir? To which Timon responds, why dost thou ask that? I have forgot all men. Then, if thou grantest thou art a man, I have forgot thee. Shakespeare often puts mistaken syllogisms into the mouths of his fools or for comedic effect. For example, from Hamlet, do you guys remember the gravedigger scene? So, um, everybody probably remembers Hamlet looking at the skull. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. So that skull came from one of the grave diggers. Hamlet and Horatio walk up to this open grave. There are two grave diggers working away, and they're in a debate over Adam, the first man. And it's really, really funny. I'm going to read it to you. Grave digger one and grave digger two, I think, is how they are in the text. Grave digger one. There is no ancient gentleman but gardeners, ditchers, and grave makers. They hold up Adam's profession. I'm going to insert this. The way that people knew that you were an aristocrat, a gentleman in uh, England, was you would wear a signifier. Do you know what that signifier was called? You would probably wear it somewhere, or it would at least be kind of like on record, you know, in the government building somewhere. You would have a signifier that was like, yeah, I'm an aristocrat. I got this thing. Do you know what that thing is? You'll know it as soon as I say it. It's a coat of arms. So Shakespeare, by the way, biographically, apparently his father had lost his coat of arms. It had been stripped of him. And during Shakespeare's day, we believe that he earned his coat of arms back for him and for his father. Okay, so coat of arms is a really big deal for an aristocrat. 
Now I'm going to read this again. There is no ancient gentleman, says the gravedigger one, but gardeners, ditchers, and grave makers. They hold up Adam's profession. Gravedigger two. Was he a gentleman? Gravedigger one. He was the first that ever bore arms, coat of arms. Gravedigger two. Why he had none. Gravedigger one. Why art thou a heathen? How dost thou understand the scriptures? The scriptures say Adam digged. Could he dig without arms? So it's a, it's a very silly joke on a quibble about the meaning of arms, right? You can't dig without arms, but really the first guy's talking about a coat of arms. The gravediggers also um, speak later to Hamlet, and they have a little quibble themselves. So when Hamlet asked who died... The gravedigger takes Hamlet's question in an absolute sense. Hamlet says, what man dost thou dig for, gravedigger? For no man, sir. Hamlet, fine. What woman then, gravedigger? For none neither. Hamlet, who's to be buried in it, gravedigger? One that was a woman, sir. But rest her soul, she's dead. (laughs) Um. Who is the woman that they're digging the grave for? Ophelia. So right after this, Hamlet discovers that it's, it's the woman that he loves. Hamlet is so great. Um, as Shakespeare got a little bit older and began to read, he would have read and learned to translate ancient classics like Aristotle, Plato, Virgil, and Chaucer. He wouldn't have had to translate Chaucer because Chaucer wrote... I guess it was in Middle English, so Shakespeare probably would have been familiar. Okay, here's the second part of Shakespeare's unique um, culture. He lived in a culture that had very little standardization for spelling, punctuation, and grammar. It was like the Wild West for words. All over the place, right? So... Sister Miriam Joseph says the unsettled linguistic forms of Shakespeare's age promoted to an unusual degree the spirit of creativity. So this is what's really interesting. Think about this. Think about how crazy it would make you every time you sent a text to somebody, they might spell the word umbrella U-M-B-R-L-A or they might spell it U-M-B-R-E-L-L-A. Who knows? I mean, it would be extremely frustrating, but also we're not dealing with a time that is so reliant on the written language, right? They're just, we are so reliant on the written language that if we can't have a standardized forms with these things, we will go crazy really quickly because we're always trafficking in words, text, the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So because of this flux, um, Shakespeare and other poets of his day were kind of like, this is so much fun, and I can kind of invent the language that we're all speaking. I, through the power of my words and the creativity of my sentences, can basically put this language together. I know of one other instance, um, I know of one other instance in European history where things were kind of like this. A poet, Dante, writing in the 13th century in Italy, 
Italy has a bunch of kind of, we could call them tribes, and each tribe spoke a variation of Italian, but there was no standardized Italian. So if you crossed over into this other tribe, it wasn't like a tribe, it's the best I can do. County is probably a better word. They would be speaking a different sort of Italian than the one that you spoke. So Dante is like, I'm going to write this masterwork, and it's going to be so awesome. It's going to be called The Divine Comedy, and it's going to be so powerful that it's basically going to standardize Italian. And all of his buddies were like, good luck. Good luck, Dante. And guess what? We all, Italians speak Dante's Italian today. He was right. He did it. I think that we can probably assume the same things about England's poets of the day. If my words are powerful enough, I will kind of, I can standardize the English language and everyone will be speaking my form of English. And so I'm gonna, I'm not gonna make the case. I think that we basically, Shakespeare succeeded in a lot of ways. I don't mean we use his spelling, we don't. His spelling is all over the place. But think about like all of the phrases that we use kind of in everyday speech. Um, I wish I could think of one. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But the odds are, I would say 50% of the kind of colloquial phrases that we use either come from Shakespeare or for the King, from the King James Bible. Even if you've never read either one, you're still trafficking in phrases that we inherited from him. So I think Shakespeare might have had these kind of ambitions, like, yep, they're gonna all speak my kind of English, and guess what, we are. We are all speaking his English. Um, in the United States, on the frontier, the Western frontier, if you owned a book, you owned the King James Bible, and if you owned two books, you owned the King James Bible and the collected works of William Shakespeare. I mean, so we're talking about a tremendously influential stamp on our language, even in the United States, not just in England. Estimates are from scholars that Shakespeare loved to create new words and coined 1,700 new words. I'm just going to read a handful of them. Amazement, that's Shakespeare. Arouse, barefaced, bedazzled, bloodstained, climature, which is a combination of, think about it, climature is a combination of what and what? Climate and temperature, climature. That one's kind of fallen out of use, but maybe we can bring it back a little bit. <laughs> Dauntless, drug as a verb. You know, I was drugged, that's Shakespeare. Enmesh, enthroned, fashionable, flawed, foppish. I'm going to now pause because we're going to get to like the word part of the show right now. I'm just going to read these last few lines and see if you can notice anything. If these are brand new words, can you imagine how Shakespeare might have invented them? I'm just going to read a handful of them. Enmesh. Enthroned, fashionable, foppish. Any guesses about what he might have done to make those new words? Do you think that like no one had ever heard any derivative of those words ever? 
a bit to get to the tenth syllable. Totally, or, totally. Or elided. Or what? Elided, join things together. Yes, that's exactly what he did. So the word mesh. So he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll bolt on N, E-N, to mesh, and now I've got N-mesh. Enthroned. I've got throne. Gosh, I could add an E-D at the end, the suffix. I can add an E-N at the front. I got a whole new word, enthroned, enthroned. Fashionable, what do you think he did there? The word fashion probably existed, and so he... Right, he added the suffix, he bolted a bull onto the end. Okay. So, teachers of English grammar during Shakespeare's day were actually teaching schemes to invent new words. I'm thinking like any English teacher here right now is like, gosh, I hope that never happens in my school. Or maybe you think, oh, that could be really fun. I think it could be fun. Why were they doing this? Because the ancient masters like Cicero, like Virgil, also taught how to invent new words. We don't have any training in this, in like the schooling that I had. Nobody trained us to like invent new words. I'm gonna like, we're gonna change that today. Cicero and Virgil and other past masters, they taught how to invent new words. Here are five schemes for making new words. Here's number one. Prosthesis. This is a scheme for inventing a new word. What do you think prosthesis means? We know what the word means. You know. Add something to it. So someone loses an arm in a war, they have a prosthetic, a prosthesis that gives them the use of their arm back. In fact, on, what is this main road that I came in on? Um, there is a prosthetic shop. And I passed it and I was like, oh, prosthesis. Prosthesis is the, f- the first scheme. Epenthesis, and I won't even try, I, I don't know the, the Latin behind this. Epenthesis, which is adding a syllable in the middle of a word. Syncope, removing a letter or a syllable. Apocope, omitting the last syllable. And last one, I don't know if it's metathesis or metathesis, I don't know. Or transposition. What do you think transposition is? You're making up a new word, what might transposition mean? Just rearrange it. it. Swap a couple of letters. Let's see what happens. And so you're like, okay, so why would we do this? What purpose does this serve? Do you guys, anybody have any guesses about why we would be trained in inventing new words? There's basically one reason. Say it again. Okay. Okay. But oftentimes they already had the existing word. They already had the existing meaning. Just to be creative. Literally, the, they think that the reason they did this is because it sounded cooler. <laughs> and I think they're right. Like, I mean, like, 
Shakespeare is known for the beauty of the words and he's inventing all of these words all the time. And so what he's doing is he's inventing words because it sounds better and there's a natural flow and especially a natural rhythm, which brings us to like our 10 syllable lines. There's a rhythm and he is gonna twist words, insert syllables, take out letters, take out syllables to create a kind of cadence, 10 syllables, ba 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 to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind, to suffer the slings and arrows, it just flows like water over rocks. We are going to try right now, you're going to take out your piece of paper, and we're going to try and just do this for fun. There's not like we're, we're going to go somewhere with these um, pieces of paper that you have, but right now, just see if you can add a syllable to the beginning of one of your words, probably the verb. See if you can add a syllable before one of the words. Maybe you'll enhance its meaning. Maybe you'll just keep the meaning the same. Just do something that you think like, this sounds good to my ear. I like the sound of this a little bit better. Okay, while you're at it, maybe try adding a suffix to a word. So, common suffixes, I hear um, young people, I say this also, add I-S-H. When are you gonna come over? Uh, Seven-ish, what color is it? Orange-ish, right? So, ish is a good suffix. Also, I-O-N or T-I-O-N, of course you've got E-D, you've got just a Y, the letter Y, you've got I-T-Y,
Okay. We've been trying um, prosthesis, adding syllables to words. A few examples. Embolden. Berattle for rattle. So there's another prefix maybe, berattle, B, B-E. A down instead of down. And here's a line from Othello. The grace of heaven and wheel thee round. The grace of heaven and wheel thee round. What is that, what is that line saying? The grace of heaven and wheel thee round. Surround you. So he took wheel and he bolted E into it. The grace of heaven and wheel thee round. Let's try epenthesis, E-P-E-N-T-H-E-S-I-S. Does anybody know the root meaning of thesis? Is it word? Because all of these are something thesis. Idea? Yeah. That would follow, wouldn't it? Yeah. Epenthesis, which is adding a syllable or a letter in the middle of a word. That's epenthesis. So I'm going to give you a little bit less time with this because what we're going to eventually start doing is we're going to try to make our 10-syllable lines into something Shakespearean, and sometimes we might need to cut something, sometimes we might need to add something. So that's kind of where we're going to go. Yes, sir? It's a, uh, a proposition or in music, a downbeat. Oh. So I think that's interesting. Oh, that is interesting, yeah. A proposition or a downbeat. Let me give you uh, an example. <laughs> this is from Titus Andronicus. Lie, oops, my iPad turned off. Give me one sec. From Titus Andronicus, lie blistering for the visiting sun? Nope, not enough syllables. The visitating sun. <laughs> One more from Henry V. I have but with a cursory eye or glance at the article? Nope, not cursory. Cursorary. He needed another syllable, so he just put one right in the middle of cursory. Okay. One more, and then we're going to start trying to make our very mundane text into something Shakespearean. Antisthicon. Another strategy for making words, antisthicon. It's the scheme of exchanging one sound for another in a word, usually for the sake of rhyme. This will make sense when I give you an example. So, 
exchanging one sound for another sound, as in rang for wrong, usually for the sake of rhyme. So here's one for all's well that ends well. Which better the first, oh dear heaven bless, or ere they meet in me, oh nature cess. Should be cease. It's, he changes it. He's just like, I don't care. Watch me. Cess. Which better the first, O heaven, O heaven bless, or ere they meet in me, O nature, cess. Here's one more. <laughs> Troilus and Cressida, Shakespeare's worst play. Um, like I wish this guy would stop editorializing and just do the lesson. Troilus, but to the sport abroad, are you bound thither? Aeneas, in all swift haste. Troilus, come, go we then together. <laughs> Just so it rhymes with thither. Okay. Now you have some tools. Let's go back to our writing. We've got 10 syllables. I have a problem with my first line. Do we have a masonry or car or, or carbo? That's where the line ends. Uh, I don't want to end my line on carbo because the word is carbonite. So what do I have to do? I've either got to add enough syllables in there to push carbonite to the next line, which I don't really want to do that because then the line would end with or, I don't want to end with or, so I think what I need to do is I need to cut a syllable so I can have, do we have a masonry or carbonite? So that's what, I, that's what my objective for this first line is. And this is what your objective for your first line is. If you're lucky enough to have 10 syllables, right? You just had like a great thought for 10 syllables and you feel like it's a complete thought and it's ready for the next line, you don't have to do anything. But if you've got, gosh, I need to add a syllable, I need to take a syllable away, if you need to add one, let's try prosthesis. Let's try to add a prefix or a suffix to one of your words. Maybe if you need to get rid of something, eliminate a syllable in the middle of a word and see if you can keep its meaning so that you have a nice 10-syllable meter for that first line. That's what we're all trying to do here. I'm going to get to work on mine.
How's everybody doing? Is this hard? Is it? <laughs> it's kind of hard. What's that? My lines were regular lines. Oh, they were. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, so now you just have to dress them up. You just have to dress them yeah, up in some way. That's what I had flipped every, every line was regular. <laughs> Find a different text. <laughs> <laughs> the text is foolish. <laughs> so sue me. I speak in iambic. Even on the line that they finished, I finished the phrase and then went on to the next Oh, did you really? I mean, there's something to that. Like, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, it is. Great, everybody's working so hard. Keep going. If you finish your first couple lines and you want to go to your next two lines, keep going. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Everyone at home better be working on, you guys better be working at home. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, those of you who are watching at home, if you want to type it out on the chat, type it out on the chat, and we'll read it aloud and sing your praises after.
Okay, anybody want to read their first lines? Okay. I want to hear the what it was originally, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a computer game? Uh, a video game. Okay. Um, the original text was, also, I know I said FF16 is not lighthearted at all, <laughs> but I did just accept the side quest titled Cock and Ball, and that's pretty fun. <laughs> okay. That's what you started with. That was, that was you got a lot to work with there. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then the answer was, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great. Great. So... I have changed it hence. Um, also, I know I said FF16 is not lighthearted at all, but I did just <laughs> accept a side quest titled Cock and Balls. <laughs> and that to me is pretty funny ish. That's <laughs> good. That's good. Hell yeah, then becomes. <laughs> Oh, hellish ovulation, yes. <laughs> That's really good. There we are. Nicely done. So it's ten syllables, ten syllables, ten syllables. Three lines of ten syllables or four? Uh, so I know I said at F16, it's not like hard at all, but I did just accept the cypress titled Cock and Ball, and that to me is pretty funny-ish. <laughs> oh, hellish ovulation, yes. Sir. So, yeah, this sort of keeps going. That's good. That's really good. Now half a yeah, right. You're halfway there. Uh, anybody else want to want to try? Yeah. Uh, the original text was: I'm making some edits in the spreadsheet. I am including the notes on the side <laughs> in the available form uh, available formula, so these numbers should be accurate now. Okay, man, that's also a lot to work with. Okay. That I went back to that one. Um, I didn't change the first line. I'm making some edits in the spreadsheets. I am intercluding the notes <laughs> on the side cells in the available formulations 
So the, these numberings should be accurate. Now, because I made it rhyme with them. That's great. What, what was the word um, inter? Intercluding. Intercluding. I know, I think I know what that means. It's not, it's including. Yeah. And it's just, now it sounds, you got another syllable in there for your count, and I like the sound of it better than including, intercluding. It's a fun word. Right? Yeah, it's a really fun word. If you, if you want Pl an example of something that just took a wrecking ball to the original text. Yeah, let's hear that, uh, let's hear that. The original text was just very mundane. I texted Steve to ask if he could get Olivia from the theater. Uh, they're finished now, and they're completely done, but the person that took her uh, has to stay. Um, and then I just was like, I wanted to rhyme, I wanted to sound Shakespearean. I texted Steve Task if he could get Olivia from the theater yet. <laughs> they are completely finished now, so please deliver her to thee somehow. <laughs> That's great! That's great! Um, finish it now. Yeah. I bet you put a little hash over the E. So you guys know this. So the next time you're reading Shakespeare and you see a little hash over the, an E or an A, you're adding a syllable. So instead of finished, finished is just two syllables. Now, finished, three syllables. Uh, I'll go, and then I want to hear two more. Here's my original from Galen. Do we have... I, I did not rhyme. I was, this is nowhere as good as yours. Do we have a masonry or carbo night drill that Robin, our neighbor, could borrow? Yes, I think we do, but it's pretty thick. It should be in my toolbox, gold-colored. Here's what we came up with. Have we a masonry or carbonite drill that neighbro, Robin, could please a borrow? <laughs> I, now responding, I, methinks, though fear it be thick-stemmed, a burrowed in the toolbox it lieth, gold-colored, my wife's hair is blonde, like the flaxen of your hair. Aww. Um, let's hear two more. My original was, uh, do you think I need to go down there and double-check? Maybe just to drive around to check windows. Just drive is enough. Okay, I will. Thank you, please be careful. I will. I'll take my dog. This sounds like the beginning of a murder mystery <laughs> of some sort, yeah? Thank you. I need to go down there and check. Maybe just circuit drive to check windows. <laughs> just circuit drive is enough. Okay, will I? Please careful, B. Come take my dog, will I? <laughs> good. That's really good. Let's do one more. Circuit drive. Yeah, circuit drive. Yeah, I like circuit drive. Yeah, really nice. Yes. Hey, remind me of your name. Chuck. Chuck? Great. So, a little simpler. My original, so my original is, uh, sure, sure, don't know if this is practical, but I would be delighted if you brought it. <laughs> Which is already almost iambic pentameter. So... Uh, I change it in, instead of sure, sure, for sure, one word. Uh huh. For sure. I don't know if. Oh, I, it, I was bothered that I didn't say I. My original phrase was, don't know if this is practical. So I wanted to put I in there, but then practical was too much. 
Mm. So I changed practical to practical. Nice. Nice. Perfect. For sure. I don't know if this is practical. Uh, but I would be, be tickled at first. <laughs> that's, perf- that's perfect. It's a great place to end. Okay. So let me just put a bow on it. Um, if I can find my notes again. As Sister Miriam Joseph argues, there are kind of three things that go into making Shakespeare such an amazing writer. Uh, His education, the liberal arts, specifically imitating the masters and using logic as being infused into everything. The kind of unsettled linguistic forms. So punctuation, spelling, grammar, it's all kind of in flux at the time. And of course, he is a genius, that's the third thing. And so we learned that we can make new words by adding to the beginning, to the end, to the middle. We can cut syllables. We can swap letters if we wanna make things rhyme. And so now hopefully we're all word coining geniuses. Uh, Any questions or comments? This is a lot of fun. For me, this is a lot of fun. Great. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Okay, thanks very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.